So we've been in a series for the past few weeks called All Things New, and it's based on a passage from Revelation that I'm not going to read you today, but it's a passage in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, one of the last chapters in the Bible. God says, behold, I'm making all things new, and we need to realize that means that all the now is going to be gone, because if the now is gone, then the new can come. But if, if he's making all things new, then that means the old things are not going to, I mean, they're going to be old. And that's our problem with Christmas. Christmas is one of these moments where a bunch of new things come into our lives. Maybe this year you're going to get a new gift, and that might imply throwing out some of the old gifts. You're going to get new cards, and maybe that means it's time for you to throw out some old cards. You're going to get new socks, and maybe it's time to throw out some old socks. That's what Christmas is all about, because that's what God is all about. We've been studying for the past few weeks that God has made a promise to humanity. And throughout the history of humanity, he has been keeping that same promise. But everything else around the promise has been changing. When he made Adam and Eve, the first humans, when he made them, he was like, okay, I'm going to put my own self into you. I'm going to put my image on you, and then you are going to be my representatives to the world. I'm going to put my image in you, and you will be my image to the world. When God met Abram, he said, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to the world. When God reached through Noah, He said, I'm going to bless your family to keep you safe in this storm. But then after this flood, your family is going to then be my representatives in the whole world. When he, when he went to Moses, it was the same thing. Moses, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the people of Israel. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. I'm going to bless them to be my people. And then they are going to bless the world. This is the promise God has made. It's the thing he has kept throughout all of time and... There's only one thing that's the problem for you and me, and that is that everything else other than the promise constantly changes. God constantly does new things. When he met Abraham, Abram was, his name was Abram, and God said to him, okay, A, you're going to change your name. B, I'm going to give you a baby even though you're over 70. C, you're going to move from this area to a totally new area where I will show you, and then I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. The promise is the same, but for Abraham, everything else was new. And the story remains that way repeatedly. Even with King David, God said to King David, through you, I'm going to have an eternal kingdom. Oh, and by the way, your son is going to build this beautiful temple. Oh, and by the way, you're going to die first. See, no matter what it is, God's promise of moving in a person and through that person blessing others has been the same throughout all time. His promise of bringing blessing and then through those people bringing more blessing has been the same. But everything else always changes. And so I've been encouraging you and challenging you over the last couple of weeks to be the kind of people who embrace the challenge of Christmas. And I call it the challenge of Christmas because even though for you and me, the Christmas story seems like an old story, it's traditions that we've held on to for a long time. Those traditions, they've, they've sort of just been part of our cultural ethos. And now you can walk around downtown Lafayette and you might hear someone who's not a believer at all, someone who's a complete atheist humming, no, well, no, well, no. And they have no idea that that song is all about the king of Israel named Jesus. 
Jesus, you know? They're just singing it because it's a Christmas song, and it's just the cultural thing. But, but this is why Christmas is such a challenge, because for us, it's old hat. But when it first happened, it was tragic. I've been using this phrase for the past few weeks. It's tragically new for all the people who are involved in it. Mary hears an angel tell her she's going to become pregnant even though she's engaged to a man. What's the man going to do? It's a tragedy that has been announced in her life. She's going to be pregnant and now she's afraid maybe she'll be ostracized, but she's willing to enter into the moment because she's willing to be subservient to God's will. And then Joseph, here's an angel that says, your fiance, yeah, the one who's pregnant, it's really a miracle. And so for Joseph, that was partially a relief. But on the other hand, it was a tragic piece of information because now he is the one who has to bear her shame. He is the one who's going to bring her into his family, into his home, and he's going to have to bear her shame and guide her and care for her. There are lots of ways. And then we saw last week that both of them hear this pagan ruler, Caesar Augustus, who's like, no, nah, it's time for the census. Y'all better go to your hometown. Go to Bethlehem. And Mary and Joseph, who have every reason in the world to defy the government, to stay back in Nazareth, they decide they're going to be people of submission. They decide they're going to be people who are following what the secular government tells them to do. And they make their pathway over to Bethlehem and as a result, fulfill a prophecy. This is how God works. The promise stays the same, but everything else changes. And so I've been encouraging you for the past few weeks to just simply prepare yourself for such changes, to prepare yourself for such transformations, and to be the kind of people who are willing to say, like Mary and Joseph, I'm going to hold on to God's promise, even though everything else changes. In fact, I'm going to welcome all the changes just so long as they all get filtered through Jesus. Because it all boils down to just these two things. God's promise is secure and Jesus is the ultimate authority. And so as long as I have God's promise and Jesus, everything else can be in flux. Everything else can be changing. And I'm all right because I'm in the midst of the promise governed by Jesus. Well, today we turn our attention to the story of, how should I put this? The three kings, the three wise men, the magi from the east, which is it? We're going to talk about that a little bit, and I'm going to warn you in advance. I have intentionally made the graphic for this series, no, not that, the graphic for the series be wrong, because... We're going to talk about what the star really was today, and we're going to talk about some of this stuff that I think might challenge us. It might be new to you if you've been around here for any period of time. Maybe you've heard me say these things before, but I think it's highly important because, as I said last week, I want you to be Bible people, not Bible story people. I want you to know what the Bible says and not what the traditions say about it. So let's get into it, but we're going to start by me telling you the traditional story. Okay, so now you can put it up there, Charlie. This is the traditional story. Three kings, sometimes called wise men, depending on the story you're reading or the song you're singing. Uh, three kings, three wise men follow a floating ball of light to a stable in Bethlehem. Now, I'm, I'm describing this in somewhat pejorative terms by calling it a floating ball of light because in the Bible, of course, they call it a star, but in our collective imagination, we imagine it as a glowing thing in the sky 
that looks all fancy like that star does. And by the way, just so you know, that's the reason I tilted the star on the side. It's been tilted on the side this entire series, whether you've noticed it or not. I just wanted you to know that it was metaphorical. It pointed to something, but it wasn't actually... Anyway, we're moving along. So we think of it as this floating ball of light, this giant miraculous star that these guys on their camels are going through the night traveling along as they're following yonder star. You know, we've, we've, we sing that. And that's the way we think about it. So I'm just referring to it as, you know, the, you know, the physical reality of how we imagine it, a floating ball of light or floating spiky ball of light, depending on how you imagine it. But that is not the story. And almost every word of this little traditional story is wrong. They're not kings. No Jewish person would have considered them wise. Like, no Jewish person. Maybe the people in their own country would have considered them wise. But no Jewish person would have considered them wise. For a Jewish person, wisdom comes from knowing God. These people got their quote-unquote wisdom from looking at the stars. And no Jewish person would have accepted that as wisdom. So they're not wise men either. And they're not following a floating ball. In fact, the word following the star doesn't really show up in the text. They're not following a floating ball of light, and they don't end up at a stable in Bethlehem either. So let's look at what the text actually says. Because what the text actually says is what we need in order for us to become Bible people and not just Bible story people. Verse 1, chapter 2, Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, pause, the first word tells us it happens after Jesus was born. So Jesus was born, then there was a time period known as after, and then these guys show up. It could have been a week. The traditional time for the celebration of the arrival of the Magi is January 6th. That is called Epiphany. And so that's sort of the traditional time, the story time. But we don't know. We have no idea. In fact, we can tell from the rest of the story, it's up to two years later. Jesus could have been a a toddler at the time. He could have been walking around. But anyway, Joseph and Mary are still in Bethlehem, however long it's been, after Jesus has been born During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, of course, this is a traumatic experience for Herod. Herod, king of Judea, was not king in any way that you and I would think of king. 
First of all, he wasn't a descendant of David. He wasn't really even Jewish. Herod was just some guy who played games with the Roman Caesars. He was originally a fan of the Julius Caesar, who then gets assassinated, but then figured out a way to ingratiate himself to the next Caesars after him, even though the previous Caesar was was assassinated. He figured out a way to to make Augustus like him. And so Herod was one of these guys who was always conniving and scheming to get himself into his position. And he finally got himself into position as quote unquote king of Judea. And to prove how great he was, he rebuilt the temple of Solomon and then created it to be this amazingly beautiful thing. And so the Jewish people had this weird relationship with Herod. They liked the fact that he rebuilt the temple, but they hated literally everything else about him because he was a fake king working for the Roman government and he wasn't a descendant of David or even really a Jew. And so Herod was on thin ice. If a new king of the Jews shows up, Herod might lose not just his job, he might end up losing his life. The message of this new king was a tragic thing for King Herod. But we're not going to spend our time on that part of the story. I want to spend our time on the other part of the story. Really, the star. Really, I want to help you see the trauma and the tragedy of the star itself. First of all, let's recognize what the text actually says and not what we think about it. So look at the text again, and we see that the Magi say to Herod, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Somehow they know that the king of the Jews has been born, and they have no reason to know that. They just think he's been born, okay? Somehow they think that. Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, go backwards just a little bit into verse 1, and notice where are the Magi. The Magi are from the east. Okay, so if you read the King James Version, the Magi say to King Herod, we saw the star in the east. And that's why the NIV translates it, when it rose. Because if you're looking to the east and you see a star, that star is rising. It's what happens to our sun every single day. Rises in the east, sets in the west. If you pay attention to the stars at night, they do the same thing. They come up in the east, they set in the west. That's the way stars work. Now, these guys are magi who are from the east. Now, let's just say that's east. It's not, but it'll help you. Let's, well, actually, from your perspective, this is east. Let's do that one. Let's just say this is east over here, all right? This is east over here. You're looking north So this is going whoop like that, okay? Now we're all on the same page. Let's say this is east over here. Now, if the Magi live in the east and they see a star in the east, they are not looking at Bethlehem. Follow me on this? They're not looking at Bethlehem. If they were to follow such a star they would be going east. That's not what this story is about. These guys are in the east. They say they see a star in the east. And so the NIV translates it in the way that is most appropriate for us to understand it. They see the star when it rose. Now, what is this star? 
What, what kind of star is this? Clearly, this is a star that means something to the Magi. They're calling it his star, the star of the king of the Jews. So, so what is this star? Well, traditionally, those people who accept the fact that it's not a mystical floating ball of light, um, they think that it was an actual you know, physical phenomenon of some sort. And so then they imagine, oh, maybe it was a supernova. And so you'll hear all kinds of Christian studies about you know, which supernova were happening in the, star, in the skies at what point in time during the Herod's reign. And they try to analyze all this stuff. And there's one particular supernova that kind of would have been around uh, maybe a few years after Herod was dead. And so that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so there's a lot of confusion about what this star might be. And uh, so they're looking at the sky and they're seeing the supernova. And then that's a big star. It's a bright, brilliant star. And so it's shining during the day and even during the night and all that kind of stuff, maybe maybe. But there's a problem. We have a major, major problem when it comes to trying to understand what this star is, okay? And the first major problem is that the Jewish people didn't look at the stars for any information at all because they thought it was evil. And and we'll get to that in just a little bit. And this story is written down by Matthew, one of the super Jewishiest persons ever. You know, he's like the super nerd Jew. We talked about that a few years back. He's the guy who knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards and quotes it in obscure ways all throughout his text. He's a Jewish person. He's not going to know anything about the stars. If there was a, a supernova in the sky, he wouldn't have known what it was. But I'll tell you what, it couldn't have been a supernova. You know why? Because the Magi are the only people who notice it. Did, did you see what happened? They go to Jerusalem, which is, again, another thing. Let's just mention that. We'll put it up on the screen, too. Uh, we'll just mention that. These Magi, they show up in Jerusalem. If they're following a, following a floating ball of light, how do they end up in Jerusalem, which is five miles north of Bethlehem? How do, how do they end up in Jerusalem if they're following a floating ball of light? Well, I have this kid's story at my house. We just watched it this last week. It's a cute story about the wise men coming from the east, and there's three of them. And it's just, you know, it's funny. It's all, it's got this great poem. We like the story. I'm not always making fun of it with my kids, even though I don't think it's historically accurate. We watch the thing. And the way they tell the story is that when the wise men get into Judea, the sky gets really cloudy, and they can't see the star anymore. And so because the sky is so cloudy, they go to the biggest city around, and that's Jerusalem. And then later on, after they do their Jerusalem thing, then the sky clears and they see the star again. And it's like, great, now we can follow the floating ball the rest of the way. But that's not what the story tells us. That's not what the story tells us. The story tells us we saw his star in the east, so we showed up in Jerusalem. We saw a star about a king, and so we went to Jerusalem to find the king, because that's where the king is. These guys, all they know is that the star meant king. And so they go to the place where they expect a king. And what's their question? Where? Where should we go next? Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? And then, get this, then the Jewish people they all gather around, and Herod's upset, and the whole city's upset. That's what it told us. The whole city's upset. Everybody's upset with this message, and so the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they get together, and they don't look at the sky. What do they look at? They look at their books. 
See, if it was a bright, shiny star that everybody could have seen, someone would have said, oh yeah, we saw that thing too. But they don't. Instead, they just go to the books because that's the, that's the thing. The Jewish people have their books. It was the Magi who had the stars. The Jewish people went to their books. And so here's the next thing, just by way of letting you know it. It's not a blank or anything. But the Jewish people, they didn't notice anything special. Not at all. And here's the key part. Nor did they follow. i got to be honest with you. It doesn't matter where the Magi would have come from. If there was a floating ball of light in the sky that these guys were following as it moved through the sky, I would have joined them. I would have been walking along with them. I think there would have been a crowd of people. Have you seen Forrest Gump? The dude's walking around, just walking, running around in the middle of the wilderness, and crowds of people are following him. That's, that's pointless. That's minuscule compared to floating gigantic ball of light, streaming light down from the sky. That's, you would follow that. I guarantee you would follow that. And no one did. And here's another tiny little detail. King Herod, who is freaked out about the whole thing, is waiting for the Magi to come back to tell him where the child is. If King Herod really wanted to know where the child was, he could have also followed the floating ball of light. Here's the point, and this is so incredible. The reason I'm making such a big deal about it is that if the star were a miracle star, this would be an easy story. See, the Jewish people, they understood about miracle things of light. They, they were comfortable with miracle things of light. The story of Abraham involves him falling asleep and then waking up to watch God in the form of a floating bowl of fire traveling through some covenant animals as he makes the covenant with Abraham. They know the story of the floating ball of light through the covenant animals. They know the story of ancient Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the wilderness where God leads them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. They are comfortable with the the idea of following a glowing thing through any sort of circumstance until its destination. They're okay with that. And if you were to go to them and say, God has put this miracle in the sky and we are following this floating miracle in the sky, if you said that, all the Jewish people would have flocked to it. They would have been willing to go travel wherever it went to find the place where the child was. But only the Magi go. And that's because it was a boring, normal star. Somehow it showed up in the sky. Maybe it was a supernova, but not obnoxiously so. Maybe it was a new star that popped into existence. Maybe it was a, a conjunction of planets that made them look extra bright. Maybe it was a constellation that had a new planet in a portion of the constellation. Maybe it was some other arrangement. The bottom line is we will never know because Matthew, who is not interested at all in understanding the sky, would never have told us that. None of the Jews would ever have known it but the Magi knew it. And what do you call 
What do you call a person who finds earthly meaning in the stars above? You call him an astrologer, a sorcerer, a magician, magi. That's what these guys were. From the Jewish perspective, these guys were not just foreigners, not just people from the far off east, people with funny language, funny accent, funny clothes, funny smells, funny food. They weren't that only. They were also the worst sorts of pagans. They were those who interpreted the omens of the skies and thought they were connecting with God. And in Deuteronomy, that sort of stuff was forbidden. Check it out, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritists or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. The people of Israel slaughtered the people of Canaan because the people of Canaan were this, detestable. The people of Canaan were the ones who practiced divination and sorcery, and they interpreted omens. They were the ones who sacrificed their children in the flames to their gods. And now you cannot miss this. Now when the Jewish people, Herod and the scholars and the people of Jerusalem, when they hear these guys have shown up, and when they find out they have shown up in Jerusalem because they saw a star and thought there was some sort of divine omen from the star, that's the thing that would freak them out. If Herod's being afraid didn't freak them out enough, that's the other thing that would have completely freaked them out. And we're talking such a gigantic combination of racism and prejudice that the Jewish people would have felt against these magi. It is unbelievable because the magi are not just foreigners. They are detestable. They are absolutely the kinds of people who should be murdered in the town square and hung on a pole. And they're in your town claiming to have a message about your king. And I want to let you know something. If the star is a normal, boring star, the whole story is different. And I want to let you know something else. If it's a normal, boring star, that means ages ago, Centuries on centuries ago. The God who eventually someday would say the words of Deuteronomy 18 to Moses and have him write them down. Millennia before Deuteronomy was written. Thousands, maybe millions of years. That God fashioned a star. And hung it in space. And set its light on its journey so that millions of years later, that light would finally reach these guys. That light that none of the Jews would be looking for. That light that no one else would have ever been able to see. 
that light, these guys saw, understood, listened, and responded to. I know for you and for me, there's a temptation that I have to feel like I'm somehow special, that I'm somehow more able to hear the voice of God. I'm special because I have his word. I'm special because I have his spirit. I'm special because I have the experiences I have. I have the education I have. I have the the cultural background I have. I'm special for all sorts of reasons. Not one of those reasons is anything to do with me. It's all stuff that happened to me or for me. But yet I still feel kind of special. Like I'm the one who can understand God. But I got to let you know something. The story of the Magi is a testimony to the fact that God will speak the language of anyone who will listen. God will speak the language of anyone who will listen. No one understood the language of the heavens, but these guys did. And God said, they need to know too. And don't get it in your mind that this is one of those situations where now that Jesus is born, now the grace can pass on to other people outside of the Jewish faith. Don't don't get it in your idea that now because Jesus is born, God has somehow changed and he is somehow a different person and now he's willing to love these foreigners because the star had to be in the sky millions of years before any of that. And I'm astonished when I read this story. It speaks so much to me. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the entire Christmas story to me. The question is, are you listening? Are you one of the people who is listening to God because he he promises to speak? Are you one of the people who is open to the other people who are listening to God? Because they'll be different from you. And that's the challenge of this story. There are three responses we see to this story. Response number one is the response of Herod. Herod couldn't handle the message. He hears there's a new king. He freaks out. In fact, if you read the rest of the story, we're not going to get to it today, but if you read the rest of the story, you know when Herod does not get any word back from the Magi with regard to where this child is, he is so scared, so freaked out that he issues a decree that all the boys two years old and under in Bethlehem and the vicinity should be killed. Herod decides he's going to kill all the baby boys two years old and under in Bethlehem and the vicinity because he's scared. He has heard a message. Now, the Jewish people, they don't accept this whole astrology thing, but Herod, he would. And he would hear these foreigners talking about seeing things in the sky, and he'd be like, I got to do something about this. He believed the message, but he couldn't handle the message. And so he retaliates. Number two, the Jewish people. The Jewish people of Jerusalem and the religious leaders, those people, they couldn't handle the messengers. They're okay with the, with the prophecy of a new king being born. They didn't like Herod to begin with. They wanted another king. They were hoping for another king. They knew the prophecy about the new king was in the text. They knew it would be Bethlehem. They knew all these things. But guess what? They couldn't handle where the message was coming from. They couldn't handle the messengers. And you know how we know that? They didn't go. From Jerusalem to Bethlehem was only the Magi. The religious leaders weren't willing to travel five miles to see their Messiah. 
There's a simple reason for that. They didn't believe it was true. After all, how in the world would God ever use astrology to communicate his will? How in the world would God ever speak about our king to those kind of people? They couldn't handle the messengers, and that's why they couldn't believe the message. That's why they didn't follow. That's why they didn't go. And that's why at Mary and Joseph's house, the knock on the door came only from the Magi. So let's look at Mary and Joseph. Because they had a response too. And before I give you their response, let's take a look at it. Verse 9. Verse 9, it says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And here, this one verse is the verse that would create the whole story of the mobile star the whole story of the star traveling through the sky. Because that one verse, if you ignore the earlier stuff, if you ignore the previous story, if you ignore the fact that they went to Jerusalem first because they wanted to know where, if you ignore all those other things, then this star is the miraculous floating star that led them all the way from wherever they were in the east. But here, it sounds like it's a mobile star. It sounds like it's moving. It went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. How are we supposed to understand that? Well, I'll give you a couple options. Option number one, who knows? Matthew's writing it, and he doesn't have a clue how astrology works. He doesn't know. He has no idea. He's getting this information probably from Mary. And Mary doesn't know how astrology works. These guys said they followed information from a star. Mary's probably thinking maybe they followed a literal star. Matthew writes it down. And nowhere in the text does it say they were following the star from the east. That's one option. One option is it's just the limitation of language. Matthew didn't know how to put this in astrological terms. It's one possibility. Possibility number two, God turned the star into a miracle for one day where the star then did move. And for that one brief period of time, as they're making the five-mile journey from Bethlehem, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as they make that last little trek, the star shows up and it actually does move. God can do miracles. We've seen it done before. That could have happened. That's possibly, possibly the thing as well. However, they almost certainly were traveling during the day because no one travels at night. So they almost certainly were traveling during the day. And so the star that they saw, maybe it was a supernova and they could see it during the day. And they're like, oh my goodness, we can see it during the day. This is a wonderful thing. This is a sign we are on the right path. And maybe, just maybe, when they reached the right house, it blinked out because that's how supernova work. They turn on and then after a time, they turn off. And maybe that's what happened. And so the star stopping meant that it turned off. Here's the bottom line. We don't know. And there's no real good reason to create an entire mythological story around this one particular verse, particularly because the story of the normal boring star is the story we need to hear. It's the story that reminds us who the Magi really are. And it's the story that helps us understand how we're supposed to relate to the story. Let's keep reading. It says, they followed the star. They were overjoyed when it stopped. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Verse 11, on coming to the house, ha ha, 
not a stable. Just got to say that. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's as far as we can read the story today. I just want to let you know what Joseph and Mary did. They welcomed them into their home. And you need to know how big of a deal that was. Joseph and Mary welcomed them into their home. See, it was against the Jewish customs, against the Jewish culture, for them to let any foreigner into their house. Your house was the place where you needed to keep it clean. You needed to keep it perfect. You needed to keep it kosher. You can't let foreigners show in, show up. They might have bacon in their bags. They, they might have the wrong sorts of yeast in there. Who knows what smells or diseases they're bringing into you? Who knows what religious stuff is going on with them? They might be demon-possessed. We have no idea. You don't let strangers into your house unless they're Jewish. That is rule number one. Rule number one with regard to keeping a home. But Joseph and Mary open their door. And you know how I know they opened their door? This didn't all just happen at the door. I mean, you can imagine it. Here's these, these magi. They come up, they knock on the door, and here's Mary. She comes out with baby Jesus or kid Jesus. We don't know. And she's there with Jesus. And the magi are like, oh, this is so wonderful. We brought you gifts. Here's some gold. Here's some frankincense. Here's some myrrh. Long trip. Nice to meet you. See you. We're on our way. And they head off. No, because the next verse, if you were to keep reading, it says they were warned in a dream to go home another way, which means they slept which implies they slept there. Somehow, I don't get it, but somehow Joseph and Mary are open enough to the crazy work of God that they're willing to welcome them into their home. If you're taking notes, that's the blanks there. But I don't have a lot of time left, so I want to do two things. First, there's another trauma I still need to give you. But before I do that, I need you to hear something. I think the thing about this story that is most challenging to me is the realization that something I have believed to be right might merely be optional. The idea of the star floating from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is an idea that I'm okay with because the text seems to think that's a possibility. But it's not the only possibility. But that's just a metaphor. That's just a symbol of a bigger thing. Because you see, I was raised in the same basic way that all the rest of us were. And that same basic way goes like this. As I grew up, I thought my way was normal. As I grew up, I thought my way was normal. Maybe you grew up in a household where you, you realized that your household wasn't the best and you saw other families having a different kind of household and you kind of liked that other one. But for the most of us, not all of us, but for most of us, we grow up with the mindset that our way is normal. 
And, and it's just a small step to go from our way as normal to going to our way as right. It's just a very small step to go from normal to right. And so as a result, in the way I was raised, man, I was raised up in the middle of the predominant culture in America. Not just the middle of the predominant culture. I was raised in the middle of the most favored gender of North America. And so not only was I raised in a white environment, but I was also a boy, and that makes a difference. And then on top of that, my further environment was evangelical Protestant Christian. And so I developed a whole bunch of ideas about the Bible that I thought were not just normal, but also right. And throughout my upbringing, and it wasn't my parents' fault, it's just the way things happen for all of us, I grew more and more convinced that my way of thinking about the world, my way of looking at the world, my way of experiencing the world, my way of understanding Scripture, my way of understanding God, my way of viewing everything, my perspective was right. Not just optional, right. I grew up firmly believing things about which direction toilet paper should go and firmly believing things about whether seats should be left up or down and firmly believing all sorts of things that are far more important. And in that process, it has been painful and difficult every single time I have come to one of those places in my life where I've realized that my perspective might be valid, but might not be right. I remember thinking for the longest time that those Pentecostals, man, alive, they were just faking it when they were singing their songs. I remember thinking they were just faking it. It was all just a sham. The people in my uh, Christian school who would raise their hands when they were singing songs, they were just trying to get attention from other people. It was so fake and I hated it. I thought it was terrible. And then one of these days, God met me in a context of worship music and like everything about my perspective changed. I remember when I was younger and I really firmly believed that Catholics were not Christians, whatever they thought about themselves. They were idol worshipers and they They followed some dude named a pope, whatever that was all about, but they were idol worshipers and they prayed to dead people. And I thought that was just dumb and ludicrous and I didn't understand anything about why anyone in their right mind would be Catholic. And then God made me meet Jen. And I was like, holy cow, the person I love is coming from this background. I need to learn more about it. And over time, I've grown to respect the whole entirety of why Catholics are Catholics. And I now have a friend of mine who's a Catholic priest. And oh my goodness, I'm, part of me was like, why are you defecting from the faith? And now I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, maybe there's something to that. I just, here's the thing, throughout my life, I have had perspective A, that I was right, and other people were evil. And eventually I get to the place where I make a friend with one of those evil people. And all of a sudden I'm like, great. Well, now what? Because now all of a sudden the Magi is in my life, in my house. And they've heard God speak to them in their language because they were listening And I have only been listening to myself and my own stories and my own perspectives and my own thoughts. I love Mary and Joseph. I have no idea what kind of of person they had to have been to see these horrifically foreign foreigners 
show up at their door telling them that they had honestly done the thing that Deuteronomy says they should be murdered for and that it somehow led them there to bring honor to their child. And you need to know something. I don't think Jesus invited them into the house. I think Mary and Joseph did that. And they come in. They probably even ate together. And then they gave them these gifts. Listen, if God is ready to speak the language of the listener, then it's not my job to criticize the language. It's my job to listen. And sometimes that's going to take us to uncomfortable places. In fact, I want to end by taking you to the uncomfortable place in this story, which I think is perhaps even more uncomfortable for Mary and Joseph than the whole magi showing up at your doorstep would have been. Because, see, that was the tragedy of the star. That was the, the trauma of the star. But there was a different kind of trauma, and it's the trauma of the gifts themselves. Let me show you this. We already read it. They gave them gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's how we get the idea of three whatever they are, because there are three gifts. But we don't know how many magi there were. We just know the gifts had three kinds. But you need to know something. Gold is a perfect gift for a king. Kings get gold. I mean, if you already own all the horses and you already own all the other things, the only thing left to get is things that make other things pretty. And so gold is great because gold is the thing you put on other things to make those things look more like they are owned by a king. And so gold is perfect if you want to give a gift to a king. Them bringing gold to the king of the Jews makes perfect sense. Now, the next one is weirder, but for the people in Persia, it probably makes a lot of sense too. The next one is frankincense. For the people in Persia, it's just a thing that they would give. But for the Jewish people, frankincense was a gift you would give to the priest because frankincense was one of the major ingredients in the priestly incense that was only ever to be burned in the temple itself. And so these guys bring gold, makes sense. They bring frankincense and it's almost like they're, they're communicating in some sort of like mystical way almost that this Jesus is not just king, he's also priest. But the third gift, I think it might have freaked Mary out. Because gold is a gift you give to a king, frankincense is a gift you give to a priest, and myrrh is a gift you give to a corpse. Now, for the people in the Far East, the Magi probably wasn't that case. We know in the ancient world, myrrh was just a perfume. In fact, if you read in the book of Song of Solomon, if you ever read the book of Song of Solomon, you know, it's a, it's a racy book. It's a book about a husband and a wife describing how much they enjoy each other. It's, a, it's an interesting book. But in the book, that's where you find the most uses of the word myrrh in the Old Testament. Myrrh shows up time and time again in Song of Solomon. It's a lot. It also shows up a couple times in the books of Proverbs. One in Proverbs where it's talking about an adulterous woman who's trying to lure you with myrrh. And once in the Psalms where it's talking about a husband and a wife who love each other so much they're using a lot of myrrh. And so myrrh shows up a lot in the Old Testament with that context. And then it's silent for a number of years. And then by the time we hit the New Testament, it shows up only four times in the New Testament. Once in Revelation to talk about something off into the future, and three times in the Gospels. 
once here in the Gospel of Matthew, once in Mark, let me show you, Mark chapter 15, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. And the other time it shows up in the New Testament is in the book of John. 19 says this. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. By the time of Jesus' birth, myrrh had been associated with burial practices. And you don't go to a baby shower bringing formaldehyde. You don't give a gift of a tombstone to a new mom. And I imagine Joseph and Mary in that situation. Now, I I don't think the Magi had any idea about Jewish burial customs. Maybe they knew about Myrrh's association with, with death. I don't know. For them, maybe they did something entirely different for their own burial customs. I I don't think the Magi had it in their mind that I'm going to bring a gift for a priest. I don't think they knew about any of the prophecies about the king also being a priest. And I don't think they had any idea that they were bringing a gift about sacrifice to this child. I don't think they had that idea. What I know is that millions and millions and millions of years ago, God put a star in the sky that only one group of people would ever see and understand. And they saw it, they heard it, and then they walked walked out a living parable bringing these gifts to Mary and Joseph. And Mary and Joseph, man alive, there's gold. Oh yeah, we'll take the gold. Frankincense, a little weird, but sure, we'll take the frankincense. Not exactly sure what that means. And here's a box of myrrh. And I imagine, I imagine Mary might have just been in that place where she's like, you keep that one. But somehow, somehow, amidst all the changes, Amidst all the weirdness, amidst all the, the, I don't even know if these men should be in my house. Somehow, Mary and Joseph are at that place where they're willing to accept whatever God brings them, even if it means embracing a box of sacrifice for the sake of welcoming these outsiders. And Joseph and Mary are just in that place. Sure. We will take the death. Come on in. The fact that two people would be willing to embrace such sacrifice to show welcoming to such people as these astonishes me. It's part of the Christmas story that I find just to be incredibly convicting and incredibly beautiful at the same time. For some reason, God, with a light years long plan, decides to use people he previously called despicable for his own purposes in his own time for his own reasons to prove that no one but no one was outside the reach of the voice of God. 
And no one but no one is outside the reach of my own sacrificial arms. Listen, God, he does new things. He uses new methods. He speaks to new people. It happens. The question is whether or not I can handle it. Herod couldn't handle the message. The religious leaders couldn't handle the messengers. But Mary and Joseph did. They handled it all the way. And they then and Jesus later would handle in real time sacrifice to welcome those who were not welcomed otherwise. And so the question for you and me is how do we be people who handle this? How do we be people who embrace the challenge of Christmas? How can we be those sorts of people? Well, I'll give you just three things to write down and then a bigger picture to think about it. Number one, I want to be a person who will listen. I want to be one of those people, a person who will listen to what God says and who opens up my heart to let God speak his language and my language into me. I want to be a person who listens. I also want to listen to the people around me. I want to listen to the way God is speaking in their heart. I want to listen to his word, and I want to listen to all those things, number one. Number two, I want to submit. I want to put myself under his lordship. If I'm the king of my life and someone shows up and says, hey, I heard a message about another king, I want to be the kind of king who says, says, okay, you take the throne then. I want to listen. I want to submit. And I want to welcome. I want to welcome the unwelcomed. Because Jesus is my king. And Jesus is my priest. And Jesus is my sacrifice. And so because of who he is and what he's done, I want to step into that and do it too. We're going to end our time with a song that just simply claims that Jesus is the one who will reign forever. And we're going to be the people who submit ourselves under him. But if he's the one who reigns forever and we submit ourselves to him, that means we need to be just as welcoming as he was. We need to be just as open as he was. We need to be just as listening as he was. And so let me encourage you to spend a few moments just in the quietness of this time, to reflect and ask God, what does it mean for me to be a listener? What does it mean for me to submit? What does it mean for me to welcome the outsiders? What does it mean even for me to embrace a sacrifice that would welcome them better? But let's just spend a few moments in reflection, allowing God to speak to our hearts. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you, God loves you, and his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.